Hello and welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Christina Suzama, and with me is our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman. Hello, Dr. Woolman. Greetings, Christina, and greetings, everyone. Welcome to Magical Medical Tour. I am Dr. Glenn Wallman. I will be your medical guide, along with Christina today, as we travel through yet another healthcare galaxy seeking for optimal health. <laughs> Today's going to be a special day. You know, Christina, we always interview certain types of people. One are the healers. Uh, another type is someone who goes through something magical and gives back to society. And then there's that special group of people that had some kind of a, a medical problem and were inspired after that to give back and actually help people in medicine. And our guest today, Robin Farman Farman, is uh, one of those people. She had some illnesses and uh, has come on to actually uh, be part of the the forefront in changing medicine as we know it. And we're going to learn more about her today in a very interesting interview. So before we do, how would people get in touch with us? Mm, well, at any time during the show, you can feel free to ask a question or make a comment simply by scrolling down on your screen and typing it into the comment box. Now, if you are listening to this months away or even a year away, you can still do so. And we'll be sure to get your comment or question over to Dr. Glenn Woolman or a guest and uh, we'll be sure to answer it. Now, there's another way, of course. Uh, if you're listening to this through a podcast and you are not by a computer, please give us a call at 818-LET'S-TALK. 818-LET'S-TALK. Now, in this case, be sure to leave your contact information back if you are would like an answer to your question or comment. Um, but we love hearing from you. We love your suggestions. We love your comments. And I definitely know that um, our guests and speakers, uh, they are so open and uh, to get back to you on whatever your question or comment is. Thank you so much, Glenn. Oh, you're welcome, Christina. Thank you. As I was saying, Robin is a sex successful entrepreneur. She's a consultant. She's a business leader and a technologist. She's a healthcare advocate, and that's one of the areas that we're really going to focus on today. And she's the author of the new book, The Patient as CEO, which we will be talking about. And also very important, which I'm very excited about, is she's a futurist. So she probably knows all the things I'm going to ask her today. But just before that, let's introduce Robin. Welcome, Robin. Hi, everyone. Hello, nice Robin. <laughs> Thank you for joining us on the show. Sure. I'm so excited to be here. I've been looking forward to this. <laughs> so do you, do you know everything we're going to ask you as a futurist? No, no, no. As a futurist, I understand the future of technology and how that's impacting and disrupting basically industries, economies, and the entire global markets, right? Um, but I'm not clairvoyant. Oh, okay. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> well, that's good to know. I was you should have told him you were. <laughs> yes, yes. Right now, you're thinking of giving me a million dollars. It's in the mail. <laughs> Thank you. Maybe I am clairvoyant. <laughs> So first, I want to uh, say uh, thank you to uh, your public relations manager, Ashley Sandberg, for putting this all together, getting us connected with you and uh, helping uh, Yoga Hub and Magical Medical Tour connect all the dots so that we could have this show today. Me too. Ashley, you're awesome. Thank you. She is. Thanks, Ash. <laughs> okay. So, you know, when I look at the things that you're doing, I, I think that 
you're a force to be reckoned with. And maybe uh, another way of saying it is you have something really important to say and people should listen to you. Would you agree with that? Absolutely, yes. So what I want to know is I want to go back to your childhood first. And before you got ill, you got ill around age 16, right? Yes. Did you already know you were a force to be reckoned with, or was it the illness and the medical experiences that gave you your superpowers? No, no, no. I already was. By 16, I was a tri-varsity athlete, including um, competitive ice hockey, varsity ice hockey, field hockey, and lacrosse, and I'm under 90 pounds. So that kind of gives you a good idea of, you know, an ice hockey player at 90 pounds. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Even with all the uh, uniform on? Absolutely. Well, I had to wear double pads because I was so tiny and it was so easy for me to like break a bone or something that, uh, yeah, so I wore double pads. <laughs> so you were kind of an animal and knew you were going to be a force, but maybe you didn't know what direction it was going to be at this point, right? Correct. Yes. So at age 16, things started happening to you. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes. Well, um, right in the beginning of the school year, it was my junior year, I dropped 20 pounds in a month. And someone my, my size, I went down to 75 pounds at the time and um, almost died of severe malnutrition. I was about three days away from dying. So I was hospitalized a bunch of times and they kept misdiagnosing me um, until finally I uh, ended up having ooh, five surgeries fresh from near college. That's got to be pretty intense for a young person who's just getting into the prime of life, age 16, you know, teenager, getting ready for college, things like that. How did that affect you? Oh, um, so actually I left school. I was in uh, Kimball Union Academy. It's a boarding school up in New Hampshire. And I was so sick my junior year. I left in October and was just mostly in and out of the hospital and then transferred to Lawrence Academy, which was only a 30-minute drive away from Boston Children's Hospital. So I changed boarding schools literally to be around the hospitals that I, um, I needed to be in all the time. And then I went to college in Boston because it was close to my doctor's. So uh, what would normally teenagers look at, okay, I want to do, you know, high school, college, be with my friends, play my sports. My first priority was always to be within um, very close distance of a hospital that I could be, go through the emergency room really, really fast, or I'd be, you know, in, within seeing my doctor within 15 minutes or 20 minutes, hopefully. This had to really affect your life. What kind of problems did you have? Uh, in terms of the medical problems? Yes. Yes. Uh, so when I was going through all those surgeries, it actually was supposed to be only three surgeries. And two of them were um, emergency surgeries. One was a pelvic abscess about this big, held um, two cups of blood. And it was a reaction to one of my previous surgeries. And that, that I crashed pretty fast. That was a really fast trip to the emergency room, um, major surgery. And then the second major surgery, there was a bowel perforation. So when they had um, done another surgery on my small intestine, there was a hole that was left. And for three or four days post-surgical, whatever I ate, then of course went into my abdominal cavity, um, which is a very, very big deal. And um, so you know, rushed to the emergency room when my temperature hit about 103. And it took me, I think they took two and a half hours to wash me out with 12 liters of saline solution. And I survived, which was a pretty big deal to be able to survive that. Yeah, I think it's a pretty big deal all the way. And you're still surviving. It's, it's yes. not totally over with, is it? 
Oh, no, not at all. Um, I'm definitely a severe chronic disease patient. I need medication to survive if I were to suddenly not have access to Remicade, which is a biologic, or not have access to some of my painkillers that I need in order to eat on a daily basis. Um, I would last weeks, probably. Huh, I'm exhausted already. <laughs> so, so when did, when did you start turning this around from being a victim uh, with an illness to someone who was going to make a difference? Absolutely. So at the age of 19, I mentioned um, I did, had all those surgeries. They took out my entire colon, um, a couple other things, and then they told me I was cured. And I was like, wait, no, 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 I don't feel cured. I'm in this extreme pain. And they're like, okay, well, that's just because you've had so much abdominal surgery. You've had so many different problems. You're most likely going to be on steroids, like a low-dose steroids for the rest of your life. I was, um, my adrenal glands had shut down production. And they told me that I was going to be on very high-dose opiates for the rest of my life just to be able to deal with the pain, but otherwise I was cured. I was like, that doesn't make any sense to me. So because at the time I was on 80 milligrams of methadone, I'd been on it for about a month or two. It was a horrible, horrible drug. And so they're like, all right, well, the next step is a morphine pump surgically implanted into your spine. And um, you can just live with that for the rest of your life. And I was like, are, are you serious? I am 26 years old. And you're telling me I'm going to be on steroids and high dose painkillers for the rest of my life. And this is it. I couldn't function. I was way too sick to even, I mean, taking a shower was like the hardest thing I could get done in a day at that point. And so I went home and I I fired all of my doctors. The entire healthcare team said, there's something else wrong with me. I'm going to figure it out and I'm going to change it. And so I started taking myself off of methadone. I don't recommend that uh, going through <laughs> severe op opiate withdrawal by yourself, but now I know what happens to heroin addicts. Um, I dropped my dose by about 30 milligrams, which was extreme and a big risk, but I, I like to catalyze things and I, I'm uh, one of those go-getter type A personalities. So when I make a decision, I execute immediately. And so I started taking myself off, went through massive withdrawal, found a um, team of doctors who worked with me as a peer and a colleague, gave me access to my lab records. This was before EMRs, right? Um, they gave me access to uh, books that would break down the chemical composition uh, on a molecular level for me, prednisone versus cortisol, um, methadone, and, and everything that I was going through so I could understand it on a scientific level, and uh, got diagnosed correctly because I found the right doctor to work with me, got off all of the medication and was put on Remicade at the time, uh, which is an anti-tumor necrosis factor, small molecule biologic. And after 13 years at that point, because I was 29 by the time I finally got on Remicade, um, I went from being almost shut in to right now, like who you see before you today, being able to hold down multiple jobs. I go around the world as a professional speaker, write books, uh, publish articles at least once a week. So yeah, that's the story. <laughs> Robin, I'm really interested in the fact that you fired your doctors and you got a whole new group of doctors. Were your parents part of this or was it all you? Uh, oh, my parents have always been rocks in my life. Well, I lost my mom about eight years ago, but at the time she was a pediatrician and um, my father is a patent attorney in medicine and biotech and they're the most supportive people. I uh, Literally, you can't get better parents. <laughs> okay, they, the plot um, thickens yeah. here. Now I, get, now I get a lot more of you. <laughs> so, yeah. so how did you go about, look, what were you looking for in a new set of doctors and what were the things that you didn't like about your prior healthcare team? 
Well, my prior healthcare thing team was thinking inside the box, right? They're like, okay, she's been diagnosed. A pathologist had her large intestine. Um, we think it's definitive. Although, you know, a lot of diagnostics are incorrect. And, and I had already gone through some um, misdiagnoses at the time. So they weren't thinking outside the box. They just said, okay, here's the narrow set of parameters. I have five minutes with you. I'm going to spend half of it looking at my, you know, your records. And then I'm just going to write another script for some other painkiller and see ya. Right. And they were not thinking, OK, let's get to the root cause. Why? That, that doesn't make much sense that I'm in that much. I mean, it was it was such extreme pain that um, even like one M&M would cause me to double over in pain. And that how is that some way to live? And how is that related just to all the surgeries? And it was at that point seven years later. So. So, OK, so now what were you looking for clearly in a new set of doctors? Ones that would look at all of the parameters and say, okay, all of this is wrong. So kind of wipe the slate clean and forget that I'd had all of those surgeries, forget that the pathologist had diagnosed it, um, and think about other ways. And so I got a bunch of tests, and um, and I found an endocrinologist who said, who was, who was not too scared to take me off prednisone, because I'd been through eight endocrinologists at that point, and everyone was like, we're not touching it. It's you are uh, your adrenal glands have shut down. You are not going to produce your own cortisol going forward. You need to stay on seven milligrams of prednisone, which is a life sentence. It's a it's a terrible drug, and you can't deal with um, basically anything because you're not making your own cortisol. So you don't react to things. Um, if I needed cortisol in my body to fight off something or an adrenaline attack or whatever, you um, you don't have. You, I couldn't make it. I was only on that seven milligrams. It was a terrible way to live. Um, Robin, I have a question. Uh, forgive me if I miss this, but right from the beginning when you were 16 and the weight dropped and, you know, the emergencies began to happen, mm -hmm. what did they diagnose you with? Or what were the, oh. the string of diagnoses that they had gone through? It so sounds like you'd gone through several diagnoses yes. through that time, you know, in the 10 years, right? A yes. whole decade that mm -hmm. it was almost like they diagnosed you and then, oh, well, maybe it's this or maybe it's that. Can you go through the string of diagnosis for us? Sure. So the first diagnosis was anorexia. I fit the profile perfectly. Mm -hmm. I was a straight A student in a very high-end boarding school. Um, I was dating the quarterback of the football team. I mean, everything. You know, I fit the profile for an anorexic perfectly, except for the fact that I didn't actually think I was fat. And so I was locked up in an eating disorders hospital for eight days uh, where they fed me raisin bran and um, apples until I was internally bleeding so much that they were like, oh, maybe there's something else wrong with you. I'm like, you think? <laughs> and so, um, you know, I was 16 years old. There was nothing I could do again about it. Like, they were like, this is, you're going to die if you don't gain weight. Um, and so that's why they stuck me in there. Got me out pretty fast when I started uh, bleeding. And then they diagnosed me about, a, I think it was days even later, with ulcerative colitis, which can be cured by taking out your large intestine because it is contained purely to the large intestine. Um, and then when that came out and supposedly I was cured, uh, then I got diagnosed with something called fibromyalgia because I had mm -hmm. so much widespread pain. Um, and of course, I don't have that either. Uh, what it turned out to be is just Crohn's disease. But they took out my colon and then they uh, rearranged part of my small intestine to create a J pouch. So now I have Crohn's disease like in part of the, the surgery part. Oh, boy. <laughs> Just a normal childhood. <laughs> totally normal childhood, yes. What's the, bi what's the big deal? <laughs> I mean, your parents, especially your mom being a pediatrician and your father yes. being in the medical industry... Uh, I, I, I almost want to interview them to find out what was going through their heads that their daughter, 
is going yep. through all this and it's almost like, how can they even help? Right. Um, and, and, oh, it was amazing. My dad would work all day long and then drive all the way down to Boston, which was an hour away to spend four or five hours with me at night after my mm. mom had spent like all day with me. I mean, they were the most amazing and supportive parents and they advocated and tried. But remember, like I'd been through Dartmouth, Harvard, um, Elliot, I mean, I'd gone through something like six hospital systems at that point, probably 40 or 50 mm. doctors, and none of them could diagnose me correctly. And all of this was happening. So it's not like my mom as a pediatrician could do any more than these literal top specialists in gastroenterology at Harvard. Mm. Right. So, um, yeah, I mean, it killed them. They're watching me go through that, that they, and if you think about it, like I've had every advantage in the world. I mean, we didn't worry about money at all, right? Um, I was from a small town in New Hampshire, extremely educated. Uh, my entire family is educated from Wellesley and MIT and Harvard. And I had every advantage in the world and this still happened to me, mm. right? But I also think because of a lot of the, the foundation I got, I am the person I am today because of my parents and because they were so strong and they taught me how to be so strong. Mm-hmm. So when did you shift from focusing on yourself and getting to be healed to actually focusing on now it's time to help others and not let other people, other young women, other young people go through what you went through. When did that change start happening? Uh, Well, pretty fast. So even while I was um, really, really sick, I was still volunteering for a lot of nonprofits when I could. When I had the energy, I would work for uh, things like the Crohn's and Cloudis Foundation or uh, children's cancer or children um, whose parents were in um, jail. Uh, I also did a lot with the arts, opera, ballet. But then I decided to switch and actually become a full-on entrepreneur and start companies. So I started with a background in genetic testing in 2005, and I worked at the very first consumer-facing genetic testing company. And then uh, 2010, I started at HealthTap, and that's telepresent medicine. And then I went into conferences, learning about technology, uh, writing books. Uh, So all told, I think I've been involved with now 14 early-stage startup companies in medical tech and biotech and education. Changing the world. Yep. Absolutely. What made you decide to write a book? What's the purpose of writing a book? What has it gotten for you? Oh, I wanted to get the the thing out. I mean, the biggest one of the biggest messages is that people, like when I was in my early 20s, you don't realize that technology is hope, right? Because medicine is changing so incredibly quickly. And when you're a chronic disease patient and your doctors are saying, okay, well, this is the rest of your life, you lose hope and you don't understand even why you want to go on with life. If this is the rest of your life and it's just going to get worse, um, it, it, it changes a lot of things. But if I can rearrange patients' thinkings and make them get walk away with two things. First, technology is hope. Things are changing so quickly that in two, five, ten years, in ten years, we're going to look back and we're going to be like, that's how we did medicine? It's going to be so massively different in ten, minute, ten years, we're not even going to recognize it. Um, and then I also want them to understand that they need to take control of their own bodies. Um, you are born and die in this one body. You are the only one who should be the full decision maker on it. You are the one who is in 100% control of it. And it's the only thing that's with you from birth to death, right? You spend so much time on your car, on your apartment, on your job, on um, even your children, your parents, whatever it is, right? So take some of that effort and apply it to yourself and be the CEO of your own healthcare team and be the CEO of your own body and take responsibility and make sure that things are happening the way they should for you specifically. 
So the book, The Patient as CEO, which is your newest book, had had a futurist written that book while you were 16 and you read that book and your parents read that book. Would would things have changed? Oh, yes, or- absolutely. Everything would have changed. Um, in fact, had I known about technology, even in a couple of years, I would have held off on the surgeries because at that time they were elective. I mean, I was pretty sick. I most likely wouldn't survive that many more years at the time, but um, they, I could have pushed them off three years. And had I pushed them off three years, laparoscopic surgery was what was being widely adopted. And now what I was, what was done on me in five surgeries, open scar this big, you know, 12 inches, um, is now being done laparoscopically in one surgery. I was an outpatient. I mean, this is this is crazy. Each one of those surgeries I had was eight days, full days in the hospital afterwards, and uh, six weeks to six months of recovery time. Um, laparoscopic change is a game changer, and that already was invented. I just didn't know about it. Uh, the other thing that had already been discovered was tumor necrosis factor, and um, there was a drug. The Remicade at the time was already in uh, clinical trials, and it was about ready to be FDA approved. And had I tried that drug, and it's actually indicated now for ulcerative colitis, um, but that took a while to get it indicated for. Um, and at the time, that's what they thought I had. It put me into remission in 24 hours. I would have never had surgery. So had I waited for laparoscopic one surgery, had I waited just maybe three more years, medication that would have eradicated the need to ever have surgery. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. So, so um, but let's my question rec- is though: Could you have waited? Yes. Yeah. 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 I could have waited. I mean, it would have. Uh, I was in. It wasn't a good life. But then again, right after all the surgeries, it wasn't a good life. Like the, you mm-hmm. know, the doctors were trying to make sure that I actually had a life and I could go to college and get a job and and live normally. Um, but. If I had known these things, I would have definitely just waited. I'm I'm so type A that I was still through all of this straight A student. Um, I was full time at, at college. I was still playing ice hockey for Boston University, which is a Division One team. Um, I was still do. I was still very Robin. It's just it was extremely hard. <laughs> you really hide easier. that type A personality, Robin. I have to tell you. I, I am I am kind of insane. So if you think about my life right now, I'm uh, I'm in pretty severe pain on a daily basis. And mornings can be hard. Like I can wake up um, just drenched in sweat, and because it was a bad night, like a high pain level night and a shaking and stuff. I am still on the stairmaster at 8 a.m. every morning. Hmm. Doesn't matter. Like uh, the way I feel is the way a normal person would feel, like on day three of the flu. And that's like my normal state of being. And I go and I jump on the Stairmaster, shaking, drenched in sweat, doesn't matter, but I still do it every single day. It's pretty inspirational, I must say. <laughs> Thank you. So the, the patient is CEO. You talk in this book, and, and I must say it has uh, one of my favorite cartoons in it right now. Uh, do you remember the cartoon? <laughs> oh, of course. I which, love that cartoon. Which, and my publishers were awesome getting it and getting the, uh, the rights to being able to publish it. Would you yeah. describe that cartoon for me? Sure. It is a uh, doctor and a patient, and the doctor's looking at the patient saying, you can't list your iPhone as your primary care physician. i love that i really do we're going to talk about apps and and technology in a few minutes but i before we do that uh i want to talk about within the book you talk about how medicine is going to change and you alluded to that a few minutes ago i don't want to talk about how hospitals are going to change people can read the book for that but give us a few minutes on how you uh, foresee that doctors are going to and how they should be changing. Doctors, well, nurses, people like that. So the caregivers, they are... Um 
going to be a lot of artificial intelligence, right? The, your primary care physician most likely will be um, an AI that you, is with you 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You'll have essentially in a dashboard on your health, like a minute by minute or second by second report card on your health. First and foremost, you'll be censored up. Um, and you will, you'll have artificial intelligence programs running in the background of your devices that will be able to analyze tone of voice, uh, facial expression, uh, if you're stringing your words together differently, uh, any, anything that's an indication of a mental disorder or stroke or anything like that. And so essentially your iPhone or tablet will suddenly give you a red light and say, or text message and say, um, you are a little bit off right now. You now actually need to speak to a live physician. And then it will automatically uh, put a physician on FaceTime for you or the equivalent, you know, Skype video, whatever. And you will see your doctor right then and there and they will fix what's going on. Right. And that's that's in seven to 10 years. Um, and then when you're talking about nanorobots curing most diseases, that's probably 20, 20 years off or 25 years off. What will I be like as a doctor at that point? What will you be like? Well, um, there's the biggest thing for doctors that we're going to need is still the human touch, right? So a lot of these technologies are going to be able to allow the physician to spend more personal time with the patient analyzing different things that maybe an AI isn't going to do. So um, the personal touch... How do you want to live your life? Is this a good treatment plan for you because you now need to go to the hospital once a week or something like that? Like, does this fit in with your lifestyle? Should we be doing knee surgery on you? Or maybe that's not actually good for your lifestyle. And so it's the physician spending more one-on-one -on -one time with the patient as a, uh, connecting as humans. And that's going to be a big deal. Yeah, I think that's always important. So, Robin, when, when hospital administrators become hospital administrators, they take courses, they do study, they do training. When a doctor or a nurse decides to become a doctor or a nurse, we go to medical school, we do internships and residencies, fellowships. We do a lot of training to become what we are. So what kind of training or what is the patient going to do as a CEO to prepare themselves to make it so that I should listen to them as a CEO? Oh, absolutely. So First and foremost, understand your body. So really become in tune with your body and, um, but big time, learn about your conditions, learn about your symptoms and learn about the community. So one of the best ways to do that is find other patients with your exact disease. So there are a lot of peer-to-peer -peer social networking sites for patients with specific diseases. Like the one I use, of course, is chronology. It's specifically <laughs> for um, patients with IBD and Crohn's disease, but there are many for diabetes, whatever. So go to the community and learn about your disease and learn about the treatments that other patients are doing. And how will this uh, progress as a process? It's, it's not going to be on day one. Every uh, patient is now going to be a CEO. How do you pr predict that this will play out into the future? Well, I became the CEO overnight. Um, I, 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 I say, yes, you can, right? Um, it's just a learning thing. And if you think about, put it in this context, just like a CEO of a corporation where you surround yourself with, uh, you know, vice president, support staff, board members, they do their job, report back to you, and together as a team, you decide on a direction for the company to go into. But as CEO, you're the one who is ultimately responsible, that the vision is carried out, and that your, um, your company overall is, is highly successful. So I say, A, why should being a patient be any different? You are an expert on your body, just like that CEO is an expert on the 
company on a global view, right? So you need to work with the team and you are the final decision maker. And that starts today, right now, right this second. There's no reason to wait. So I think that's a really important part. And we, we promote that all the time on Magical Medical Tour about people actually learning about their bodies and becoming more aware and taking responsibility, not just learning yep. about the body, but lifestyle changes. You talk about exercise and diet and a number of other things. And uh, I think that's going to be the key to when the doctors will agree that the, the patient should be part of that process when they come and show all of that interest and knowledge, not just the idea of having an app and being able to Google Crohn's disease. Right, right. That's, that is not becoming the CEO of your own healthcare team. That, that is some nice to-haves on top of the whole mind shift, paradigm shift. Um, just go and do it. <laughs> yeah, I like it. So let's, let's talk about apps for a little and technology. Give us a little bit of the introduction into what you do in technology now and what you advocate for. Sure. Uh, well, right now I'm vice president of a company called Invicta Medical. We do non-invasive electronic retainers that predict and treat sleep apnea, also for post-anesthesia acute care and um, anti-snoring. This is a game-changing device, $10 billion market just for sleep apnea, and sleep is one of the four pillars of health. If you are not getting a good night's sleep, you need to figure out why, and you need to change that. It is as important as, as eating and exercise, those three major things, right? Um, the other company I'm involved with is called the Oregon Preservation Alliance. I'm co-founder and now on the board of directors, and we are catalyzing breakthroughs in tissue engineering and cryopreservation in order to eradicate the world's transplant problem, and then uh, one step further, be able to do organs on demand. So if you are, uh, you know, have an ulcer or you need a bypass or something, instead of giving you a medication or doing a regular surgery on you, we're envisioning that we switch out your organ. Uh, with an organ that has been grown from your own stem cells. And so those are the, the uh, two main companies I'm working with right now, and both of them will impact literally billions of people. I've been to a number of uh, lectures by futurists and scientists, and they talk about the, the concept of somebody coming into the emergency department having a heart attack and mm -hmm. at setting it up where you get some stem cells and those stem cells go into a lab, you get admitted to the coronary care unit, and a few hours later, they now have a new heart for you to uh, take you up to surgery. Is that, that's what you're that's talking about, That's what we're about, envisioning, right? yes. Yes, exactly. That's where we're, what we're envisioning. We've worked with the White House, Department of Defense, um, OSTP, and DARPA, as well as running some workshops with, um, that included people from the FDA, the NIH, and the uh, HHS in order to get a lot, millions of dollars of funding. And so we actually have already gotten million millions out of the Department of Defense for tissue engineers and cryopreservation uh, biologists that are working on this particular problem. Do you see any danger in this? Danger? Yeah. No, actually, I, I, um, I mean, I think about this problem a lot, it, and I don't, it, only the, the naysayers on, on life extension, right? Because if you're going to be switching out organs, if you think about the United States, 900,000 deaths a year, that's 35% of all U.S. deaths, could be significantly delayed or prevented with an organ transplant. Um, so if you, you could have some naysayers say, okay, well, that's going to increase the population too much. And, um, you know, extend people's lives. And there are people that say, okay, if we extend people's lives by another 20 or 30 years, which we're kind of aiming to do both with the Invicta medical device and with tissue engineering and cryopreservation, um, then 
all sorts of problems happen. And of course, I have anti-arguments to that where we can 3D print meat in our homes so we don't have to worry about food as much. Um, lots of all these other technologies just providing an abundance of opportunities. So I, I would counteract that argument, but that would be, I would think, where the danger lies. Let's talk about some future technology, some, some things that don't exist yet. Um, like, for example, you were just talking about uh, some, something with meat and 3D producing your own meat or your own foods and vegetables. What about an, uh, give me some kind of an app that you think might be in the future that doesn't exist yet. An app? Well, yeah. oh yeah. Well, I'm. Um, well, if you go back to what I was talking about with artificial intelligence and mental health, this app does not exist yet specifically to run in the background of all programs. But I am envisioning an app, and I'd be one of the first people to download it that will um, check in on your mental health on a second by second basis and be able to tell you if um, anything is going wrong uh, with with mental health or stroke or any of that. And that just running in the background of all of your devices on everything you do, monitoring your every second. And that's just an app. Our homes are going to turn into laboratories. We're going to be able to urinate into our toilet, and it's going to give us a whole diagnostic. We're going to be able to do a number of things uh, about the atmosphere in our home. I, I see all of that also. I wonder, do you also see things like implantable chips? For example, if you're depressed today, you just push part of your chip and you get a little serotonin or a neurotransmitter that might make your mood change. Or if you're angry, you can press something else that will calm you down. Do you see that as uh, part of the future? I, well, I see that, but with a slight caveat. Um, okay. You're not going to be pressing anything. It's just going to automatically happen for you. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, and we're going to be doing that in multiple ways. So you can have subcutaneous things like, say, in the palm of your hand. Or Subcutaneous just means under the skin. So we can have sensors under the skin. You can have drug dispensing under the skin. I mean, we're already doing things like morphine pumps, right, installed right. Um, in, your, in your spine. So sure. just any kind of drug dispenser. We're doing it for birth control already as well. Um, but then also potentially with a brain-computer interface. So maybe we start to manipulate uh, hormones, serotonin, all of that kind of stuff using electronic right as opposed to using a medication but either way uh, yes it could be that your phone recognizes and it's that same app with the AI in the background understanding your mood and all of that kind of stuff and it changes things so not only would it dispense the medication that you have subcutaneously maybe it turns on uh, some kind of electric signal that stimulates uh, hormone production maybe it is um, it, it turns on your favorite music and mm -hmm. suddenly changes the lighting in your apartment or um, orders from Instacart your favorite meal that suddenly gets delivered in 20 minutes, right? So maybe this app also just changes your environment to make you feel better or for whatever you need at that moment. And you don't even have to do anything. It just does it automatically for you. What about the decision-making? One of the things that's important uh, to me is end of life. Mm -hmm. And especially now that we're talking about uh, extending life, changing organs, replenishing this and that, at some point um, right now, for example, cancer. There are certain people that have cancers that are going through a first round, a second round, a third round of chemotherapy, and it seems like in their particular case, now this may change in the future with uh, some of the things that we're talking about, but let's say a person is coming to the end and they've had a third round of a cancer treatment and it was unsuccessful, and now they're trying to determine how to deal with their end of life, what their, how their story is going to end. Do you see any kind of an app for that? 
Uh, or, so or I see things like, yeah, well, um, first, uh, first, there are many stages to the whole end of life thing. So if you're talking about things like assisted suicide, uh, we're going to have robots that'll help us with that. Um, and it'll become more and more legal in different parts of the world. So if you really want to do that, um, there are places you can. Um, I'm a big proponent on this is your body. So I'm very pro everything, pro um, suicide. If you want to do that, pro abortion, pro everything, because I'm like, this is yours. Um, but then you can also think about apps that are coming up. I know of an app that helps you with the entire process after you're dead. So um, the how to be cremated, the funeral, the memorial service, all of this. So you open the app and you just click on this beautiful UI and bam, 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 and you're done. And it gives you all of the options in an easy way to, way to handle it versus, you know, right now if someone dies, you're just like, I don't know what to do, right? And so I'm already seeing those things pop up. But what, yeah, what other aspects of like the end of life do you want to um, kind of investigate? Well, I'm talking about whether or not you should, for example, do another treatment. You know, what oh. are the what are the uh, odds that this will work? Whether the side effects of the treatment are going to be worse? Whether your quality of life during that treatment, uh, especially if it's possibly not going to succeed, is just prolonging a suffering rather than actually potentially promoting a healing. Right. And um, I'm, I don't see that significantly changing, except for the fact that we have a lot more uh, medications, treatment plans, um, and different things that will extend your life even more. So maybe more and more people are going to actually come up against that decision um, because we will be able to extend people's lives. And uh, I, I lost my mom actually in the ICU and the hospital uh, twice, once uh, six years beforehand, then she lived another six years of, you know, normal life. And then um, the second time she was in the ICU and both times they tried to get us to pull the plug on her. Um, and we didn't. And, you know, I look back and if we had listened to the hospital that first time, she wouldn't have seen me get married. She wouldn't have seen my brother get married. She wouldn't have known that my sister-in-law was pregnant with her grandchild, right? So she got to live those six years of life. And um, we made that decision for her, actually, because she was in a coma, essentially, in the ICU. But um, I, I say that's, that's your decision and your friends and family's decision if you are unconscious. And that's not going to change. Uh, what I think is that people need to be more open-minded and understand that this is your body and is your choice and your decision always, no matter what you want to do with it. Hmm. Christina, any thoughts? So many. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm still, I, I'm still stuck on the 3D printing of uh, our meats and vegetables right now. That's going to be in like in like hmm. ten years. I'm guessing we're going to have 3D printers of meat in our own houses. As much as we have microwaves, they're going to be as prevalent. That's going to be very interesting. Because yes. then, then it goes all into that whole nutritional value and, you know, you know, our bodies and our systems, you know, for the new generation coming in, that might be pretty cool. But, you know, the whatever generation's still alive now, boy, that's uh, something to adapt to. So yeah, I'm, it is. I'm into all that. <laughs> well, can you imagine also what a 3D printer of meat is going to do to being a vegetarian? So I'm a mostly vegetarian right now, and it drives me crazy the amount of greenhouse gases and land and the way we treat animals. Um, I don't think it's right. But when we start 3D printing meat from stem cells, I mean, this, wasn't, this isn't killing an animal. This is not mistreating an animal. This is not using huge amounts of land and releasing tons of greenhouse gases and wasting tons of oil and antibiotics and hormones. This is direct from a stem cell. So it is pure, antibiotic-free, healthy, lean protein source. 
And so I will probably eat it. Hmm. Yeah. When you're when you're working on these things with other entrepreneurs and companies that are trying to develop something, uh, we deal with the FDA a lot. Yeah. Uh, and there are probably other uh, programs out there that are either the naysayers or uh, in your hockey terms, goalies trying to prevent certain things from happening. What are the what are the biggest obstacles that that occur when you're trying to deal with this? Right. Um, well, a lot of these aren't they aren't trying to to stifle progress, um, but they are there to keep us safe. Right. And so um, while it's not a perfect system, it does save lives and it is people trying to be altruistic, not trying to actually block block you know, progress. That being said, yes, there are a lot of barriers to entry in the medical world. Specifically, yes, we're going through FDA clinical trials for the Invicta medical device, the sleep apnea medical device. And so that'll take us about 24 months to get to market with a de novo class two. And it's difficult, but it also, I understand why those are there. Um, other big barriers working with um, some of the big pharmas. I love pharma, actually. I mean, I wouldn't be here today if pharma didn't exist. So I'm a huge, huge um, fan of big pharma. But they have to deal with so many rules and regulations internally. It costs about, for a neurodrug, $15 billion, a B, billion with a B, um, to get one neurodrug to market. Right. So they are dealing with so many rules and regulations that they can't move fast. They can't move um, inexpensively. Right. And so these rules and regulations halting progress like that, like especially in the pharma space for potentially life saving drugs for people who would otherwise die uh, because it just takes so much money and so much time. So those are some big barriers that I'm seeing. Mm. What about around the world? You know, we talk about uh, this country has uh a lot of wealth and people can get to medicine, but there are many countries where kids are starving or a simple vitamin of certain types could change someone's eyesight uh, and prevent diseases. What's the world picture happening with you? Oh, the world picture is so ridiculously exciting. So things like drones, bringing medication or vaccines to patients like um, in the Himalayas, right? So in the Himalayas, there's one physician for every 10,000 patients, right? So most of these people have never had access to healthcare, uh, education, sanitation, right? So things like drone delivery suddenly get medication and vaccine to people who may never have ever even seen a doctor. Um, India right now is trying to do the $3.67 cell phone, smartphone. This is a big deal and a game changer. Now, while this particular smartphone uh, might have a lot of IP theft in it, it might have, um, you know, government subsidies, whatever. The point is, in the next few years, India will get this done. They want to be able to provide their entire population, essentially, with a $4 smartphone. And again, giving people access to uh, information that will, will be a game changer, right? Just that one one object. You can give a full physical now with a smartphone. All right, so there are things on the smartphone that plug in that replace multi-million dollar machines that are now free apps. Or maybe it's a device that costs about $10 to make that uses the uh, smartphone as the computing system. And that's why a lot of these things are getting so inexpensive, all these medical devices, point-of-care diagnostics, is because the uh, computing power is done in this one device that you plug everything into, or it's done in the cloud where you've got an AI and um, you know considerably more computing power. So that's why these things are getting so inexpensive, and they're going to be ac accessible to people uh, where there are no roads, right? That, that boy, you're painting a beautiful picture. Yes. 
It is. It's beautiful. I mean, and on a, if you think about the sheer number of companies putting billions, again, with a B, billions of dollars into blanketing the world with internet access, it's expected that additional 3 billion people will be coming online over the next three to four years. Uh, companies like X um, out of Alphabet, which is Google, right? Google's, Google X um, used to be called that. And they're doing it with Project Loon, which are balloons, hot air balloons that will circumnavigate the globe in the um, air currents. And then you've got Elon Musk putting in like a billion dollars to put 400 satellites up in orbit. You've got um, another uh, company that's doing 600 satellites in orbit with, in um, partnership with Virgin Galactic. You've got uh, Facebook partnered with Samsung, Nokia, um, a couple other major big giants, and they're trying to make uh, internet access 100 times cheaper by um, helping in existing infrastructure as well as using drones to provide internet to people who have never had it before either. When you uh, talk about all of this, one of the things that we always talk about now with, it almost sounds archaic now, the electronic health record compared to what you're talking right. about now, and it's still relatively new in the process, but we worry about security. Other people, insurance companies getting certain information, if they know about our genome or things like that. How is that part of your process? Right. Um, so I get the security and privacy question a lot. So there's two ways of looking at this. So first and foremost, yes, there's the life insurance companies, the health insurance companies. But again, in this country, they are regulated, right? So um, right now I'm in covered California. I cannot be denied health insurance, of course, with Obamacare. You have to be. Um, so I'm not too worried about these companies getting that kind of information. They'll, they'll be able to get their hands on it at some point anyway and use it either maliciously or not. But again, mm -hmm. I've got the United States helping regulate that. The other way to look at it is who else would want this data? Mm, well, no one really, right? Well, who wants your heart data? Maybe someone to blackmail you? Well, they're going to do that regardless. They're going to find some way to blackmail you anyway, or uh, potentially do a targeted killing in a group of 10,000 people. So there is a scenario where you can, um, you know, uh, take the president's DNA and create a virus that will just kill him in a crowd of 10,000 people. There, there are those kinds of things. So if they get their hands on my medical data, my genome, maybe they would be able to create that. Again, so far-fetched, um, someone like me, they, why would anyone do that, right? They're not, I'm, not, I don't, I'm not surrounded by security detail. So the reason you would be scared about privacy and security and data coming off of these, a lot of these devices, whether they're HIPAA compliant or not, whether they are uh, hooked into your EMR record or not, is identity theft. That's the thing you should worry about because these devices provide a back door for criminals to get your social security number. And then once they have your social security number, of course, identity theft and financial gain. They do not care about your EKG data, most likely, right? They care right. about getting your social security number. Same thing happens when a physician or healthcare professional has uh, access to EMRs on a personal laptop computer. They go to their house, they go to a cafe, they go to the airport, and they access one patient's data data records, right? Well, if their laptop is not encrypted, um, that provides a back door, again, for a criminal to go into the EMR system and get either that one patient's data, um, social security number again, address and all of that, the personal data, or um, even potentially all of the hospital systems. So that's what I'm worried about. Again, is identity and financial gain. I am not, I, I don't care if they know that I've walked 10,000 steps this week. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> Uh, they'd probably be exhausted following your 
following <laughs> your app. They're just thinking about it. <laughs> yeah, right. They have to have an app to get them to sleep and wake up at some point. What, yes. what about um, some young entrepreneur right now who's thinking about apps? You know, there are lots of kids today that are playing with video games and on computers, and they're yep. starting to think in terms of, of apps and technology. How, how would some young person who comes up with a, an interesting idea move forward like you did? Oh, absolutely. So uh, kind of, I mean, first of all, I, I do have a management and finance degree, so I know how to build out like a business plan. So first figure out what business are you in um, and do the whole analysis of it. Is this a, bit, a good business idea? So you, um, you do a competitive analysis, you do a financial analysis, you understand your market, you understand how to reach your market. So, I mean, it's building a business just because it's an app versus a brick and mortar versus, uh, you know, a brand new um, chip company, it's all the same, right? You need to define your market. You need to do your financial analysis. You need to understand the whole business, right? So don't think you can just develop an app, put it up on the app star and wham, woohoo, I just made a million dollars. Like life doesn't work that way. <laughs> really? Right. Yeah, just like you can see, like with my book, maybe I'm an overnight success after 40 years of extremely hard work. Right? Right. Um, so look at it that way, first and foremost. Um, some of the really cool things going on with apps right now are anything to do with artificial intelligence. Companies like IBM Watson have opened up their API. You can hook into their personality API. You can hook into their regular API um, and partner with them. And, and they um, actually want your business. So I would say, first and foremost, if you want um, something to do with AI, and if, you, if you're not using AI in the next few years on your app that you're doing, then I'm guessing you're not going to succeed. Um, the other cool thing is aggregating some kind of data and analyzing it. Again, that will require an AI component, but um, no one's really out there yet. HealthKit is trying to do something like this, but no one has been able to aggregate all of my wearable tech data right? And then start to analyze it and layer it in with data. Uh, so companies like Under Armour, Under Armour, if you've heard of them, it's a clothing, it has sensors in it, it's for athletics, right? Well, they don't think of themselves as a hardware company or a, um, a device company at all. They think of themselves as a community company and a data company because they are aggregating um, the world's food journals, right? And they are aggregating all of this wearable tech data and then partnered with IBM Watson to start to analyze the data from the back end and give you insights on your health or essentially, you know, a warning light um, if something is going wrong. So those are two, uh, those are two areas that I'm thinking about with apps. Um, the third actually is virtual reality. Virtual reality is set to explode over the next few years. Everything is going to go VR or augmented reality AR. Uh, with things like car uh, Google Cardboard being distributed for free, we now all can have access to having virtual reality in our homes, right? Mm. And it's just going to get better. So maybe you are the company that develops um, a great VR app because people are going to be utilizing that stuff all the time. You know, one of the things that we worry about um, each year, especially during flu season, are viruses that come around the world. You know, we get the Ebola virus and, and we get the Zika virus. And then every year people go out and get their flu shots. Well, the way a flu shot is determined is you get a number of countries that put together their um, epidemiology and they try to predict what virus is going to be out there, and then they make a vaccine for that. Do you see that improving in the future where we really yes. direct it? I'm so glad you asked me that. Okay, so 
things like getting uh, biological samples across borders is very, very difficult, right? Moving, so when you're making vaccines, you need to transport to various labs um, biological stuff, right? Whether it's the virus, maybe it's skin samples, tissue samples, biopsies, whatever. You need to do blood. All of this is very difficult to move across borders. Um, but with genetic sequencing, just hit the $999 mark. This is a game-changing um, uh, platform right there, right? So because sequencing has gotten so incredibly inexpensive and it has outperformed Moore's Law, we can now sequence things at the point, right? So instead of transporting um, the virus across borders to the United States to or to whatever pharma company is going to do the vaccine, you can uh, do a DNA analysis on it and then send it in an electronic file instantaneously, right? So this will save um, days to weeks or months and um, then you'll be able to create the vaccine in a matter of hours because you have all of this breakdown and get it distributed fast. So it's going to change the timing of this. And because you d they analyze the flus, right, um, but they're not always right. So maybe we can start doing multiple flu shots in a season when we discover a new, uh, new flu and then immediately uh, genetically sequence it and get something built for it. <sighs> I'm exhausted. I know. I'm so excited you asked me that question. That's a really <laughs> cool one. <laughs> Did you know I was going to ask that? No, I had no idea. But oh. I, I have so much content, I could talk nonstop for about 10 hours straight and still have um, not even exhaust about one-fifth of, <laughs> of what I know in technology. So go ahead, keep asking. <laughs> Christina. Well, I, I mean, I, I think that's that's amazing and, and it's very thrilling yes. uh, to know that, you know, uh, especially when they're not having to transport all this tissue, you know, through uh, the the planes, etc. Um, now, then it, then it brings me to the point where, where that I've, I feel that what is lacking is every individual is an individual. Mm -hmm. And though they have like these vaccinations, etc. I mean, for me, it will become extremely thrilling when they can actually adapt each vaccine to those individuals as opposed to one straight across the board. Because I don't trust that. It's right. like giving one pill to everybody and going, this is your pill, but we're all made up so differently. I mean, what's going to work for you right now is not going to work for me and vice versa, right? So for me, when is that day going to come when oh, this I'm vaccine so is individual to me? And then yep. at that day might be the day I consider taking a vaccine. <laughs> We are already doing that. So that, I'm so excited you asked me that one too. So that's called precision medicine. So basing a treatment plan on the individual, uh, taking into account their genetic makeup. We are already doing this in cancer, mm. right? We're taking cancer uh, tumors, sequencing them and uh, applying the correct drug to that specific tumor after sequencing it. Um, and this is just going to get better. Uh, in fact, UCSF is one of, that's uh, up here in, in San Francisco, mm -hmm. one of the top hospitals in the country, and um, they have a huge new precision medicine institute there. Um, so they're one of the leaders. I, I look to them. And uh, we're going to see this more. But I talk about that, not just precision medicine, right, but truly personalized medicine. So medicine uh, treatment plan based on the individual, their weight, their height, their hair color, whatever it is, uh, their genetic makeup, their environment, their age, everything to do with them, taking into account every single factor on their bodies and in their lives to be precision, but then truly personalized because healthcare, when you want it, 
where you want it, how you want it received. If you want robotic surgery in the middle of Africa with sensors inside of your blood vessels, subcutaneous, and a brain-computer interface, and you want to see your physician by virtual reality, then that is your choice. That will be your choice, and you will be able to do that. If you want to still just go into a normal hospital and um, you know have the experience that you have today, again, that will be your choice. Right? Truly mm. personalized medicine. Mm. Robin, we're coming close to the end of the show, and uh, we have to make her bounce. <laughs> oh yes! <laughs> All right. Well, what do you think in the future would make her bounce? <gasps> okay, can I give you a scenario? So Please. this is going to be our houses in the next probably ten to fifteen years, or even faster, because technology is moving so quickly. So I am lying on the couch and I am watching the Super Bowl, and I am too lazy to get up. So what? And I need a new beer, right? Well, obviously not me, but. And this is a scenario. So you're just too lazy to get a beer. So you put on your brain computer interface and you think about it and your robot that lives at home with you goes to your refrigerator and gets you the beer and brings it over to you where you're watching the Super Bowl in virtual reality. Doesn't stop there. Right. So your refrigerator then um, understands that one beer has been taken. It will automatically add it to your equivalent of an Instacart list, your grocery list, which will then be gotten um, by something like a Power of the Crowd. You, it will send automatically to the grocery store. Um, an autonomous car is going to bring it to your house. Your robot will go and unload the groceries, and it's going to magically appear essentially in your refrigerator. It does not stop there. So we will have sensors inside of our toilets, inside of our bodies, under you know, as I said, in the in the veins, subcutaneous, and it will be able to tell you what you need every day. So um, I'm going to need. 47 ounces of Gatorade that day, and I need 54 grams of protein, and I need, um, I'm down a little bit on vitamin B. So my refrigerator will automatically order that stuff to be delivered, and it will just appear inside of my refrigerator. And I will potentially have at that point, because this is actually coming out next year for about $17,000, is a robot chef. So my robot chef will reach into the refrigerator and prepare my meal, and it's going to appear for me perfectly nutritionally balanced for what I need that very day and based on my lifestyle and my personality because I do want that piece of chocolate cake. Beautiful. Now, why, why, couldn't, why couldn't we uh, combine the refrigerator with a 3D printer and just make the beer right there? Hmm. That is a good idea. So, I mean, beer, you wouldn't 3D print naturally, but I mean, of course, you can make that in your home now. So, I would have to think about how you could catalyze the yeast to make beer more quickly than it does right now. <laughs> Which is, yeah, that, we just need a catalyst of some kind, right? There you go. <laughs> so, next, I want to know okay, so what is the exercise regimen? If you, um, <laughs> and the brain exercise of even the thought process. <laughs> well, I mean, we can do all that now. So all of that right now exists, except for being able to personalize um, our nutrition. But the brain-computer interfaces controlling robotic arms exists. That works today. We actually have brain-to-brain -brain interfaces where you can put one on and move somebody else's body. We mm. have done that. We actually did that about three years ago. So this mm. is, everything I just mentioned are technologies that exist today. It's it's just not distributed into the consumer market. They haven't been scaled. It's still a little bit too expensive for um, it, for the widespread distribution. And no one's been, put them together in the scenario that I just outlined for you. But those technologies all exist right now and work right now. <laughs> Can we get a robot to exercise for us? 
Well, we can, yes, so we can put on an exoskeleton and, um, and control that with a brain-computer interface, and it will do all the movement for you. Now, while um, it may be actually be able to get up your heart rate with that, it's, at the very least, it's going to be stretching and moving your muscles. So um, for someone who is paralyzed, stroke victim, elderly, who can't exercise the way I do, uh, can put on an exoskeleton and still get a um, significant number of benefits without... Uh, the muscle, you know, without actually having to move your muscles, um, you know, if you're a paralyzed person or something. At the end of our show, we always ask our guest for a health tip, and I am really excited now to figure out what what's going to be your health tip for us. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've already talked, I mean, the technologies are all exciting, um, right. and I already talked about you really taking control of your health, so being the CEO. Um, and I've talked a lot about exercise every single day since I was six years old. Um, unless I was hospitalized, I have worked out. I would say that is a huge, huge thing on, um, not only be feeling your best, uh, but your mental state as well. But you know, one big cool health tip is giggling. (laughs) So make sure you laugh out loud every single day. I know that as as a chronic disease patient, especially when I was a shut-in, I was isolated, so I didn't necessarily have lots of people around me to go and and do a huge laughing fit. But I have trained myself, so there are certain noises that always elicit a giggle from me, like the uh, the snapshot on a Mac computer. Whenever I take a a screenshot and it makes that really fun camera-like sound, it makes Mm -hmm. me giggle every single time. That will dramatically change your life. Laughing out loud on a daily basis, literally, it will change your life so dramatically. You're going to look back, you're like, wow, why didn't I do that before? Brilliant. I love I, that. I love that, too. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great one. We're, we're uh, great fans of giggling on Magical Medical oh, yes. Tour. Yeah. Well, oh, look. She's bouncing. I'm bouncing. Oh, yes. you got her bouncing. Nice work. <laughs> that's, that's connecting to the true nature of who we are. Yes. You know, the laughter. And, yes. and with all the different things that are happening in the world, we so few people look at the gratitude of what we have right in front of us and at this moment. Absolutely. So, laughter. Yes, I bring it yes. on. <laughs> and if you're having trouble laughing, then, you know, email me. I always have a fantastic meme. I actually uh, text memes to about six or seven of my friends every single day. My dad gets about four or five memes from me every day. I mean, you just spread the joy, right? It's fun. Robin, in preparing for this show, is there anything that we didn't cover that you don't want to say looking into the future? Oh, I wish I talked about that. Oh, I mean, well, they're all the cool technologies, but I guess you could read my book for that. The 3D printing, the uh, power of the crowd, uh, robotics, even more sensors, point of care diagnostics. Um, yeah, so those are all really cool. So I would say go read my book or uh, some of my articles on LinkedIn or Medium or Forbes. They're all over the place. Um, but I don't think so. I just, you know, take control. Be This is you. This is your body. Be responsible for it. Don't let other people make the decisions Mm-hmm. I think that's a perfect way to end. I'm grateful to our very special guest, Robin Farman Farman, for sharing her wisdom, expertise, experience, spirit, and energy with us. I'd like to thank her. Thank you very much, Robin. Uh, also, I would like to thank all of my healers and my teachers for taking me on my journey and allowing me to be where I am. Thank you, Christina and Magical Medical Tour and Yoga Hub and Segovia for putting this together. And all of our uh, audience who watch this show, uh, we thank you so much. And until next time, we will be searching in another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy. I wish you all 
Optimal health. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Bye. Ben Roman. Thank you so much, Robin, for honoring our community. This is uh, going to be delightful as as people listen to it again and again through the years and see everything unfold that you've just shared with us. <laughs> thank you. And of course, we would like to thank each and every one of you for joining us in this new platform of education and information. We're grateful for your continuous support and we look forward to hearing your feedback on how we can serve you better. If you would like to learn more about Robin, please look her up on uh, robinff.com robinff.com and be sure to check out her book The Patient as CEO and it is sold on Amazon I'm just going to show you a picture of that right now and of course you can connect with Dr. Glenn Woolman through his website glennwoolman.com where you can learn about his metaphor square breath or follow him through Facebook at The Medical Guide Again, we're always grateful for your feedback, comments, and suggestions. And uh, give us a like. Subscribe to our channel on YouTube. Give us a call anytime at 818-LET'S-TALK. 818-LET'S-TALK. Until next time, namaste. back so if you think of it as a column in the spine in the middle you want to train the the muscles in the front of the spine and the muscles in the back of the spine and make sure they're very well balanced to have the best result beautiful pilates does that are you uh, do you work with a lot of pilates instructors yes i, th I think pilates is fantastic okay i think it's absolutely fantastic for the core i th also think yoga is fantastic it's fantastic for the core. The thing about I like about yoga is, is that a lot of times yoga can be done by many ages and it's a lot of isometric exercises.